Good morning, church. Uh, just trying to <clears throat> thinking, man, to understand the goodness of the Lord, man, guys, to be in His presence. Um, it's just overwhelming. <laughs> I told myself, don't wear those shoes. They're really tight on you. They're going to make you cry. <sighs> it's like, ah, I know, man. It's like they're too tight. It makes my eyes water. <laughs> right? I shouldn't. Nor should we sing songs like that. But then again, I cry for every stinking song, man. And it's like, oh, Lord, to be in your presence. I don't know how that, that affects you, you know, that God has given us that privilege. Anyways, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Last, uh, last week we got back into our series. Oh yeah, I was supposed to tell you guys that the, uh, the lady's not at the range thing. Uh, the 28th of this month is the last day to sign up, so make sure you know that. Read your bulletins. Um, we're back in our series, King Jesus, as we... Um, Last week, we started a new chapter, uh, given the fact that we started a new year. We started a new chapter. No, not really. That's just where we were at. Um, but it just so happened to fall like that. And so, <clears throat> chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, we'll read to verse 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whoever and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's just quiet our hearts before the Lord. Thank you. Praise you, Jesus. Bless you, Lord. Verse 13, as we get it into that, this portion here. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> Last week we left off with Jesus and his disciples leaving Magdala and going back to, to the headquarters area. If, if, if you remember, just kind of following along on the map, you know, that the Magdala was, was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and when, after they had been 
kind of confronted by the, the Pharisees and Sadducees there and him dealing with them. They get back into the boat and they head on north towards Capernaum, and which is on the north side of, of the Sea of Galilee. And when they get there, it doesn't tell us how long they were up in Capernaum, how long they lasted there, how long they, they were in that little region for. We're not aware of when they had gone back over to, to uh, um, Beth, Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Um, but from there, it seems like they're back on the road and, and we pick up our text here this morning with Jesus and his disciples going on another road trip again because that's where we started. You know, chapter 14, I think it was, or whenever it was, no, chapter 15, where, where again, he, he takes off up to, to Sidon and, 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 and uh, Tyre. And, and this time it seems like they're back on the road, but this time they're going inland and they're going up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi should not and and it, is, it should not be confused with Caesarea itself. Caesarea itself was a coastal city, and uh, and it was um, you could see the the story and talk you know the, the Peter and and Cornelius that whole story in chapter ten of Acts takes place in Caesarea. Um, and so Caesarea Philippi is nowhere near Caesarea, and it's up to the north, as far north as you could probably go, and still kind of be in Israel, uh, by, by, uh, by Dan area. Um, you, you, that, that's where Caesarea Philippi is. And, and so Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles straight shot from, from Bethsaida. And, and, and it sat on the, on the base of the mountain or the, the foot of, the, of Mount Hermon. And again, when you go into your maps and you're looking at, at, at these places and how far they had to walk and, and to get to that place. Now, if you're walking northeast towards that area where it's at, um, you, you, Mount Hermon finishes off like northwest, the, the, the northwest part of Mount Hermon comes down right, right where Caesarea Philippi is at. And, and as you're walking that way and you see this mountain in front of you over here, all of a sudden as you get close and you, and you can view, there's this big old cliff that, that's there. And it's just a, a big old rock basically. And, and if you want, man, you could, you could go online and you can Google Caesarea Philippi, go on to the images, and it's this amazing, just this amazing view of this massive rock that's there. And, and Caesarea Philippi, again, it, 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 was, it was a place where there was, there was various religions that were going on in that area, because in that little region of Israel, which is way up north, close by Syria, it was the center of Baal worship for that region. And, and again, everybody, it seemed like, worshiped Baal in so many different areas. And, and the Greek god Pan also had shrines there. And if you look at these pictures of Caesarea Philippi, of what they think it looked like because of the, the, the footings that are there and all these shrines that, that were there and cut into this big old rock where they put statues and, and all that. It's just a fascinating area. To look at, and and so when you go there, um, it, it was also a place where Herod the Great had also made a temple for to to honor Augustus Caesar. 
Because Augustus Caesar was also worshipped. There was that Caesar worship that was going on in that whole region, in that whole area. Because of Caesar being over everything in the Roman Empire. And again, I find it fascinating that's where Jesus is taking his boys. To another place that's just so godless. That there's so many different gods. And yet that is where he's taking his, his, fr- his buddies there, you know, him and, him and the boys. And I'm sure Jesus was looking forward to this moment with them because they were going to be all alone. Nobody else was with them. It was just Jesus and the 12 disciples. And he wanted this time with them because he's going to ask them a question, a couple questions. But he wanted it to be a private time with them. You see, what's happening here in our text is there's a major change happening in the ministry of Jesus. It's going to take another turn here. One that the disciples have been preparing, that God was, or Jesus was preparing them for, but they had no clue how this trip up to Caesarea Philippi would be changing their outlook of what's going on around them. You see, even though they're headed north towards Caesarea Philippi, Jesus' eyes are focused on Jerusalem, which was south of them. You see, it was all downhill from here, if you want to look at it that way. Jesus is headed towards the cross. Even though he's headed north, man, his eyes are focused towards the cross, which would be happening down in Jerusalem. And he needs to prepare his disciples for this. (laughs) This turn of events. And what we have here in our text, (laughs) because of the ministry changing, this is the good, the bad, and the ugly put all together right now. Because there's so much good that he needs to share with them about what's going on. But man, oh man, it looks bad and ugly. The outcome of it. But this is a necessary thing that he has to do to take his disciples away from everything. Everything that they had been going through when they were down in in Magdala. You know, all the stuff, all the the controversy that happened there as they went back up to to headquarters and they crossed over to Bethsaida. And now they're headed out up 25 miles or so through a hilly country up there. Maybe along the... the, the, uh, the Jordan River, because the Jordan River, the head of the Jordan River, the spring, is, is coming up from Caesarea Philippi there. So, so maybe they're going in that direction, headed up, because they're, they're going up from there. But they're going to see and experience everything in this moment. And as they're there, as they're getting there, or as they've gotten there, as they see the backdrop there, Jesus asked the question, Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Here, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In the other two Gospels where this is shared, he doesn't use that phrase, but Matthew puts it in. And Jesus uses this phrase, or or, or it is used 80, 80 times. Jesus uses this term about himself about 80 times throughout the, the, the scriptures or, or throughout the, the gospels. It's, it's like his favorite way of referring to himself. 
And it's quite possible that he's using this, this phrase or this title because it wasn't really recognized among other people. It wasn't a popular idea. He is referring to himself as the Son of Man. And this title essentially means the man. <laughs> and when Jesus uses it, it just takes on a whole different significance. In essence... It is his name as the representative man. Whereas the son of David was distinctively his Jewish name, if you will. And the son of God was his divine name. But he uses the word or the phrase son of man. So he asks his disciples the question, who do men say that I am? Now, if I were to ask that question, or if you were to ask that question, who do men say that I am? <laughs> it would be somewhat of a prideful thing, especially if I had just gotten off a really good sermon or something. What are they saying about me? He knocked it out of the ballpark today. Oh my gosh, I didn't fall asleep this time. It was great. It would be more of a prideful thing, you know. I thought I did pretty good today. So, so if I ask that question right after a service, you know, although I never ask my wife, hey, how did I do today? Because she is so brutal. She is so honest. <laughs> you guys show me way more grace. Anyways, be that as it may. If, if I was doing that, if I was asking that question, what are people saying about me? You would think, man, you're kind of arrogant there, Brostein. You know, that's kind of an arrogant kind of thing. Because you see, in reality, it really doesn't matter <laughs> what people are thinking or saying about me or about you. Only because it has no eternal value what people are saying about me or about you. It doesn't matter what people say or do to you or about you. But in reality, <laughs> it does matter when it comes to Jesus. What people believe or say about Jesus. That is important because he is the son of God. He is the one, the savior of the world. And it is through him and only through him that salvation can be made or had. And those are eternal matters. So what, do, what are people saying about Jesus? And again, the people will say all kinds of crazy stuff. We, we, we know what the religious leaders, what they thought about Jesus you know, they, they had said these things about him, that he was associated with Beelzebub, who was the, the, the god of the demons, that that's where he was getting his power and stuff. But Jesus is not asking them, hey, what are the religious leaders saying about me? No, he's asking them, hey, what are you guys hearing from the people that, that you guys are associated with, that you guys come across? You know, when the throngs are around, what, what are people saying? What are you hearing? And they respond to him in verse 14 where, where it says, So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and some and, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And, and so, again, what, 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 what are they saying? Now, we, we heard back in chapter 14 that, that Herod thought that Jesus, Herod the Tetrarch, that, that, that Herod thought that, that, that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. 
And maybe some of the other people were thinking that same thing when they heard about John. They seen John and they really hadn't been around Jesus. And they're going, man, oh man, they're so similar. There's a lot of similarities there. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, it was prophesied that Elijah should come back in Malachi. And some thought that this prophecy in Malachi was concerning the Christ that Christ would come like Elijah. But Jesus himself said that he, he wouldn't be ministering like Elijah. It would be John the Baptist who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, it tells us in Luke. And so they're saying, well, it could be John the Baptist. It could be Elijah, Jeremiah. People were, were throwing and floating his name out there. And Jeremiah is known as the weak, weeping prophet, and he had this tender heart, and it was broken towards the nation of Israel. And you're going, well, I, you know, him and Jesus are, are right there, you know, because Jesus had that compassionate heart. He could be like, like Jeremiah. Jesus would be known as a man of sorrows. And they're saying, well, it could be one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns around as he hears from them. Okay, so this is what the people are saying. And he turns to them in verse 15, and he says to them, Who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? And I think that's the real question that he wanted to get at as he took them away from everybody and everything else. Oh, he wanted to know what the people were saying. He wanted to see what they were hearing. But he turns it around and he just kind of looks at them, the twelve. They're right there. But who do you say that I am? See, it's so easy. It's so easy to know what others say about Jesus, especially some, some who, who just come like, you know, they really don't read the word, but they're coming to church, they've been involved in church, and they sit under a pastor, and they're going, well, I know what, what my pastor says about Jesus, and that's what I believe too. You know, it's so easy for that to, to happen because you sit under someone and they teach you about who Jesus is and you're saying, well, they're the ones that are knowledgeable. I really don't have that knowledge of who Jesus is. But who is Jesus to you? Not what others have taught you or what you've heard from others. What do you know about Jesus? Yourself. Whether you're a young Christian or an old Christian, it doesn't matter. Who do you say that I am, he says. He's asking them personally. Who, who, who is Jesus to you? Is he still that Sunday school teacher? Or that Sunday school Jesus, I mean. And I'm not putting down, disparaging any kind of you know, Sunday school program. I, I know that, we get, that our kids are being taught great back there, but, but I'm asking you, is, is, is your Jesus, the one that you worship, the knowledge that you have about him, is he the one that just makes you feel good all the time? And you're going, well, shouldn't Jesus make me feel good? Yeah, absolutely. He is our comforter. All, all, all of those things. But, but, but do you worship him just because he's a good teacher to you? You know, you've heard that he's a good teacher. He, he, he teaches good moral teachings. And, and, and for some people, it's like, well, he's like my good luck charm. <laughs> you know, he's just there whenever I need him. 
And again, he is those kinds of things, except for like your little good luck charm. You, you know, you rub him, it's like, please, Jesus. You, you know, again, but people have this concept that, that, well, Jesus is that one who's there for me all the time. And it's almost like nothing bad could ever go on in your life because, well, Jesus says that he loves me. And so how could anything bad go, happen in my life? And, and you have the concept that when something bad does happen, that means that Jesus doesn't love me. And so, so you really don't know who Jesus is if you have that kind of concept. Because this is how Paul viewed Jesus. He says, for this, in, in 2 Timothy 1, and I'm going to give you tons of scripture today, so write these things down. Um, in 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until the, that day. And in Philippians 3.10, he says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. You see, Jesus is asking him, Who do you say that I am? And he's saying this to them because it's going to get real up in here really quick. There's something happening, and this is why he has them out of all, everything else, because he's going to share with them some heavy-duty things. And it kind of goes back to what Paul shares with us in those two scriptures, because when we, all of a sudden, are going to go through some hard times, and it gets real up in here, you know, and you're going like, well, I don't know what to do. It's like, well, what's your view of Jesus? What is your view of Jesus? That he's only there in the good times or that nothing bad should ever happen to you? Because that's not what Paul said. He says, you know, for this reason, I also suffer all these things. The things that I, I, I go through, man, good, bad, and ugly. I'm persuaded in whom I have believed in. And nothing changes. Because even in Philippians, when, when he says to know him and the power of his resurrection, we're going, yes, man, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we forget that other part where it says, and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. You see, if we want the power of the resurrection, there has to be a dying first. There is no resurrection without death, Right? And so we are to die daily to you, <laughs> to me. I am to die to my flesh. It's like, what does that mean, pastor? That I can't be happy? <laughs> it's like, no, you can be happy, but I'd rather you be holy than happy. And if that means going through the trials, going through the woodshed, going through whatever you got to go through, and you still going... I, I will be conformed to his death. I will go through the fellowship of his suffering because I know the power of his resurrection. You see, so then Jesus is not this little good luck charm for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Just the one that makes you feel good? How about, how about when, when everything falls down around you? When, when, when your health or your life or, or people in your life are just thrashing you? And you're going, well, I don't, know. I don't know if Jesus still loves me. It's like, why wouldn't you know that? Who do you say that he is? Just the one that always makes you feel good. And you see, it's a very shallow knowing him. 
I, I, I could understand if you just came to Jesus, man, and all you know is Jesus loves me, man. That's all I need to know. Right on. But when it gets real up in here, and but when I say real, I mean when craziness hits, when suffering starts, when everything is just punching you in the face and in the gut and taking out the, everything from under you, and you're going like, what's going on in here? It's gotten real. That's what's happened. It's gotten real, and you're not shaken. You're still there. I've talked to a lot of you this past year, as I was sharing a couple weeks ago about a year of change. It's like, man, your your world has been rocked, and you're still standing. And what it proves to me is that there's some depth, and you've come to know who Jesus is. And Jesus can tell you, who do you you say that I am? It's like, dude, you're my rock, man. Because there was no way I could have made it through this year without you holding me up. As Jesus asked that question, man, it's Peter, man. Peter the man. He is the man, man. I love Peter. He says crazy stuff. I know that. But you know what? Sometimes he hits it out of the ballpark. But he can't even, he can't even take credit for this, as Jesus tells him. But it's, Jesus, it's Peter. Peter's the one that speaks, speaks up. And I don't know if there was like a little lull as he asked the question, who do you say that I am? I don't know if they were just kind of sitting there, kind of looking at each other, or it just came out that quick, where Peter goes, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That was a huge statement for him, man. In other words, you are the anointed one. You are the sent one, the promised one. You are the Messiah. We know that. Now, we have heard others make those claims, even some of these guys. They have made that claim before when, when he stilled the storm, and all of a sudden they're going, dude, you're the man. Like, literally, the Messiah man. You are him. We know that because nobody else can, can say that. But, but all those other times, Jesus never asked them, hey, who do, I, who do you say that I am? They just acknowledged it. And other people acknowledged the same thing. When there was others calling them the son of David, they were acknowledging you are the Messiah. And Jesus wanted to know if his disciples, with no prompting of anything else, just this question, who do you say that I am? To know if they were in that same place. So let me ask you, is that where we're at? Is that where you're at? You see, once again, we heard Peter say something like that in John chapter 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000. Only John shares this portion in, in, in 68 and 69 where Peter, where Jesus said, hey, do you guys want to leave also, man? Because it's getting, it's getting real up in here. And there, all these people have just left. And he turns to them and says, do you guys want to leave also? Because you're more than willing. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, guys, I hope you guys don't go. I'll have nothing if you don't go, if you go. He says, hey, do you guys want to leave also? And Peter, man, and I think it was without hesitation, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, he's not asking them. He was telling them back then, do you guys want to leave? And Peter's going, where else am I going, Lord? That would be stupid of us to walk out on you right now because there's nothing back there for me. 
Because if we say that we are in the same place as Peter here and make that same confession that he made, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that says to me that you've grown from worshiping the baby Jesus to where now you're bowed down and worshiping the crucified Jesus. And you understand what, why he came. Not just to be this little baby in a manger, but he came to die for your sins. And so now that's what he's saying. He says, man, if you could come to that conclusion, because I'm going to tell you guys, we're not going to cover it today, but I'll give you a little heads up for our next study. He's going to start telling them, dude, I'm going to die. And that's going to rock their world. And that's why he's telling them right now, who do you say that I am? And he's kind of almost going to remind them, remember you said I was a Christ? I'm telling you, man, I'm dying. I, I, we've gone north, but I'm going south, peeps. That's where I'm going. And so, again, when we understand that we just don't worship the baby Jesus, we worship the crucified Jesus, and we bow down to that. Good, bad, or ugly in your life, right? We are being conformed into His image. We are being conformed into His death. In Galatians 2.22, he says, For I have been crucified, Paul is saying. And this should be our mantra. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your understanding, if you could quote that and go, that's me. You're saying, I don't, want, I don't want nothing of me anymore. I know what I can do. I know my proclivities. I know my propensities. I know what I, I, I am capable of doing. And I want to die to myself so that Jesus can live in me and through me. And that's where he's preparing them for. And that's why he's asking them that question. And that's why Jesus challenges us today saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Are, are you, are we convinced that when we say He is Christ, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, are we convinced that nothing will move us from here on out? Or are you still in the place that if everything falls down around you right now, <laughs> I don't know if I could believe in Jesus. It's like, then you're very shallow in your thinking of who Jesus is. Very shallow. No, I'm not saying that, man, you can't be a Christian for a long time and have these bouts of doubt. I'm not saying that because we all battle that. But, but, but if you're going like, I don't know if I could follow Jesus because of what's going on in my life, it's like, then you've probably not been confronted with that, with Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? To where nothing moves you, good, bad, or ugly. You see, he was preparing them. He was preparing a, them as he is and as he has been, been, been preparing us for whatever comes our way, good, bad, or ugly, guys. They thought that they had seen it all. With, with this, this portion of, of Matthew that we're in, where, where he is the rejected king in ministry. 
They thought that they've seen it all. Man, they've been attacked time and time again. Now he's preparing them. Oh, by the way, all this is part of the purpose. I'm dying. (laughs) I'm going to die. He had been preparing them. And that's why he's asking them this question. To take them into this new place, this new level, if you will, this new, this, this new way of believing and trusting. Because he's preparing them for him not to be there with them anymore. Oh, he's not going to leave them or- orphans. <laughs> he will send his Holy Spirit, but he's gone. Within the year of this time, he is gone. There's still a lot more ministry to do. He's preparing them for all of this so that nothing, nothing is able to prevail against them. Nothing. Because they have made their confession of him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And because they have made that profession, and if you have made that profession and you believe it with all of your heart, then nothing should be able to move you. Why? Because you stand on the rock. Because He is the Son of the living God. He is everything to us. There's nowhere else I can go and get that kind of strength. (laughs) I can't do anything in and of myself. No matter what comes my way. And so Jesus says in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, because he's now, again, all those guys are right there, but Peter's the one that's talking, so now he's looking right at Peter. (laughs) I'm sure everybody's going, ooh, Peter. But he says this, blessed are you, happy, fortunate, to be envied are you, Peter, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, man, blessed. And they're probably going, who? (laughs) Peter? He's blessed. (laughs) I could imagine Jesus just had this amazing smile on his face because he knew the sincerity of Peter at that moment. Oh, Peter's going to jack things up. Don't get me wrong. He will mess up in in just a few verses. Read ahead. (laughs) He's going, man, you're on the side of Satan, Peter. It's like, I was just on your side. (laughs) Right? But at this moment, he's looking at him and he's so jazzed with Peter. Blessed are you, fortunate to be envied. Only because this confession, and this is why Jesus was so stoked, only because this confession that, 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 that Peter had responded with was, had been a revelation from God the Father. Peter did not, you know, it's, it's not like he investigated it at all. He, he, he thought about this. He, he calculated how it would be. He, he didn't come to any of those conclusions. He was just a mouthpiece that God revealed to him, and he said it out loud. And he was probably just as shocked. <laughs> you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Huh? Where did that come from? You know? You see, it was only the graciousness of the Father from above that had given them this revelation. You are the Christ. You see, it's interesting because God had hidden these things from the proud Pharisees and Sadducees. And he had revealed them to babes. 
to his humble disciples and to the common people. This is what he had been revealing to them because back in Matthew chapter 11, in dealing with, with the Pharisees, he says this in chapter 11, 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to, to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and whom and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so, man, he knew it wasn't Peter's doing here. Peter was just a vessel at this time that God had revealed to him, and he spoke these words You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so once again, this is why Jesus wanted to get alone with his disciples. He wanted to take them out. And he was clearly, explicitly, and plainly asking them for a confession. Jesus had never done that before. Other people had proclaimed that, but Jesus had never asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? He never asked them to confess that he was the Lord. It's almost like he had taken them away from all the emotional healings and miracles that had gone on before that they had witnessed, and he didn't want those things to be what caused them to respond, you are the Christ. We've seen you do this. It was away from everything. In other words, nothing good, bad, or ugly had happened. They were just chilling. They were just walking. They were just on this little road trip and they could see the, the rock over there, man. And Jesus just says, hey, who do you say that I am? So now that Jesus has accepted this confession from Peter, he is now ready to build on that confession and to teach his disciples this new truth. Again, Jesus is probably so jazzed to be alone with these guys. His heart is probably just so excited to hear these words that came from Jesus. And now he knows that he could speak to Jesus or to speak to Peter. And, take, and because of his words that he has confessed, he could take Peter just a little deeper here. A better understanding of the truth and the service of this ministry that they were in and that he had been preparing them for. And he says this to Peter in verse 18. And also I say to you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus is affirming to Peter that he was living up to his name because his name means rock. And, if, and, and there seems to be a little play on words that's going on here in the Greek because it sounds more like this in the Greek. You are Peter, Petros, a stone, a little stone that is, and upon this rock, Petra, a massive rock, I will build my church. You see, when Peter was first brought to Jesus from his brother Andrew in John chapter 1, and Jesus sees him... <coughs> 
He says this to him, you are Simon. That's his name, Simon. You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated stone. The, the name Cephas or the word Cephas is the um, Aramaic word for a stone. The word Petros is the Greek name for, the, for a stone as well. So, so, so Peter, Simon, not Simon, Peter, uh, Cephas, and, and uh, what else am I going for? Petros. <laughs> They're all the same. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. <laughs> They're all the same. They all mean stone. Peter, Petros, and, and, uh, and Cephas. They all mean the same stone. Now, was Jesus telling Peter that he was going to build his church on Peter? As some do think. And that right now, somehow, as he's saying this to him, somehow he is changing Peter's name from, from Petro's little stone to Petra, the, the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> you know? Is that, what's hap- is that what is happening here? No. Some think that. There's whole religions that base that whole thing upon, upon Peter being, being the head of the church. Now, it could be that Jesus is pointing to Peter saying, and you are Peter. And he's, he, he could be pointing at this massive rock now that they are at right there in Caesarea Philippi. And again, when you Google it, you're going to go, whoa. It could be that he's going, you, Peter, <laughs> I am going to build my, rock, uh, my church upon a rock like this one. It's quite possible or it could be that he's pointing to Peter, you, Peter. And he points to himself. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. You see, the disciples would have recognized Jesus as the rock at that time now only because of the confession that they have made. You are God, is what they were saying. And again, in Deuteronomy in, uh, 20, uh, 32, 4, it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. In Psalm eighteen two, He is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation and stronghold. Another one in Psalms eighteen thirty one. it says, For who is God except the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? And so now it's quite possible that Jesus is pointing to Peter, says, You are Peter. You are a stone, but upon this rock, <laughs> I will build my church. I will build my church. As far as Peter was concerned, he never claimed to be anything but an apostle. In 1 Peter 1, 1, we're, and an apostle is one who is sent. He never claimed to be anything else but an elder, if you will. In, in 1 Peter 5, 1, one who oversees. And he never claimed to be anything special other than a servant of Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, and that is one who serves. Never in his writings did he like point to himself like, hey guys, remember Jesus building his, his church on me. I'm carrying the whole load. Never. 
He was one who was sent, one, one who oversaw, and one who served. That's all he claimed to be. He never took the role of the church. He knew that it belonged to Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says in his, in his letter in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. He says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also are living stones, are, are being built up a spiritual house, to holy, a, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to to God through Jesus Christ. He never claimed to be anything but a servant in that sense. He says, we're all living stones, part of the stone, part of the rock. And Jesus says, I will build my church. And it's interesting because this is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is mentioned. The Greek word for church is ecclesia. And in Spanish, it's interesting because the church is iglesia. <laughs> Very similar. And it literally means a called out assembly. You see, guys, that's what when I come out, I go, hey, good morning, church. We're called out and we're assembled together. You are the church. When you guys are gone, when nobody's here, it's just a building Oh, you might say, oh, over at church. But it's just a building. Without you, this is nothing. You are the church. You are the assembled, called out ones that have come together. The word ecclesia is used 140, uh, 114 times in the New Testament. And 90 of those times, it, it, those references, it refers to a local church, a local assembly, if you will. And all the other times it's mentioned, it's the church as a whole, the body of Christ. In our text, it's referring to the church as a whole. Jesus was not building just a local assembly, but the universal church, not the, not the, not the universal church or whatever, it's like, no, the church as a whole all over the world for all those who make that confession like Peter made. And the word ecclesia was not something new that, that the disciples had never heard before because they had seen people gather together and they knew that was an ecclesia. That's the word that they would use when people assembled together. And you see that in Acts chapter 19 when the Ephesian people had gathered together against Paul. That The same word for assembly in that chapter is ecclesia. But Jesus is introducing something new, something different to his disciples. And when he spoke about my church... It was in contrast to any other assembly that was going on that they had ever seen because this was something new and something different. Because in his church, Jesus would unite Jew and Gentile together to form one temple and one body or a new temple and a new body which would be referred to as the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law, of, 
of commandments attained uh, in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And his church would, would, would not distinguish between the natural uh, people where, where they would be equal. Everything would be equal because in Galatians 3.28 it says, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is the builder of the church and he is the head of the church. And Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 say that. And Colossians 1, 18 also says, says that. Believers in the church are living stones as Peter mentioned. And when we get together as a congregation, as an assembly to worship Christ, we are part of the whole body of Christ when we do that. And so there is this oneness that we are called to be a part of. That the world may see that there is unity and love in the body of Christ. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 explains it perfectly. So we are supposed to, as we make up the church of Jesus Christ, be different than any other assembly. Because we make up his body. And when he talks about the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's interesting because as you see this, this, this big old mass of rock and you see the indents of where these statues and maybe the foundations of where these shrines were at, there's also this big old hole. And it is believed that that is called the gates of Haiti or the gates of hell. And so I know in some translations it says that uh, it is the gates of hell. And it does sound better that way. But the real translation is the gates of Haiti. Because hell, hell was the final destination for unsaved people. And, and, and we see that in, in uh, the great white, white throne judgment that they are finally cast out forever. On the other hand, Hades is only the realm of the dead. And so there's a difference between hell and Hades. And so I'm, I'm rushing through this because I'm looking at the time. And even though uh, we've cut time down, um, there's just a lot. There's just a lot here, guys. And again, I just want to encourage you where it talks about that the binding and the, and, and the loosening, again, it's not the power that we have or what we tell God to do. It's what's already been proclaimed up in heaven, that we would understand what His will is so that we could loose the things here on earth or we could bind the things here on earth, but not because it's like, oh, I bind that and I bind that and I loosen that, and it's all about what I bind or loosen and stuff like that. No, it's about what he is already bound and what he is already loose, that we would be conformed into that, not what we think or not what we say. And when he talked about giving uh, Peter the keys to the kingdom, he gave him the, the, key, the keys to the kingdom to, to, pro, to proclaim the gospel, not the keys, keys of heaven like all the jokes say, you know, that, that Peter's there at the pearly gates. Eh, it doesn't happen that way. But, but he did. He got to, got to use the, the keys to open up the, the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And then later on, the apostles went out. And so I just want to encourage you with all of those things. Because in the end here, as I'm just scrolling and going, <laughs> um, <laughs> run out of time. 
there was no reason when he told the disciples, now don't go tell anybody about this. It was only because he knew that the nation and the Pharisees and the religious leaders had already turned his back. He says, there's no need to fight about this. Wait until the Spirit comes upon you and you will have the keys to the kingdom and you will proclaim. And some will come and some will not. Amen? Amen. <laughs> the church has been commissioned to go now, therefore. He told them not to. Now he's told us to go after the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord God. Bless them and encourage them, Father, through this message, Lord God. Even as we've had to run through a lot of it, Lord God, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. You would be the one that teaches us these things, Lord God. And I pray for my brothers and sisters right now, Lord. Those who have proclaimed that you are the Christ, and yet, Lord God, there's been so many of them who, who, who have just stayed at a level where, where it has rocked them. Every little thing rocks them, Lord. I pray that even this morning you have challenged each one of my brothers and sisters to take them deeper that they would make that confession that nothing else from here on else will ever rock them, Lord God, no matter what happens in their life. Lord, I pray for them that you would lift them up. I do pray, God, that even this morning, if there's anyone who's here who does not know you, Jesus, I pray that this morning, Lord God, they would confess you before men. That God, right now, Lord God, you would just, just grab a hold of them that they would say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. And if that's you right now, even as we're praying, that you would just slip up your hand right where you're at, and I just want to pray for you, that you would make that confession, that profession, that as, we, as I look out, and I, I just want to pray that you would ask for forgiveness. Is there anyone this morning here who would say that, who would do that? Hmm. Father, I do pray for all those in this room right now. Lord, they're, they're professing that you are the Son of the living God. And I pray that you would use them in powerful ways to reach the people around them, Lord. Give them boldness, encouragement. Use them in powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen.